We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Legendary writer and television director Royston Mayo began his career as a camera operator for Thames Television in the late 1950s before working his way up to director and producer. Working as producer on the flagship ITV talent show Opportunity Knocks in 1968, Mayo became invested into the inner circle of acquaintances to the great Huey Green and guided the show through its golden years. From Tommy Cooper to Les Dawson via Mike Yarwood and Kenny Everett, Royston Mayo has been pivotal to some of British comedy's defining moments. In recent years, Royston has stepped from behind the camera to flex his acting muscles in ITV's Emmerdale and the hidden camera show Off Their Rockers. I caught up with one of the most eminent figures in the history of light entertainment to talk comedy, legends and his recollections on an unprecedented career in entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Royston Mayo. Okay. Okay. Right, I'll go into question one. Um, so, the uh, fascinating thing about your early career is that you started on the music show Two Jack Good formats, formats Like This, and oh boy, are frequently cited as one of the most influential shows on British television. How do you think this style set the benchmark for live music shows that followed? <laughs> well, yes, I mean, you've... Uh... You've, you've, you've mentioned the beginning there. I mean, this is going back 1958-ish. Um, oh Boy. Oh Boy was the first series that came out of ATV out of Chelsea Palace. That was ATV. The series that I was involved in as a cameraman, not as a director, as a cameraman, was in ABC television, and that was in Manchester. And there were two series. One was called Boy Meets Girls, which was Marty Wilde and the Vernon Girls. Uh, and that also had Lord Rockingham's Eleven and uh, Cliff Richard, Billy Fury, Jess Conrad, Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, Joe Brown, Adam Faith, I've got a list here, Johnny Cash, Don Storr and Cherry Wayner. Uh, and it was a wonderful series. And then that um, stopped and we had a, another series exactly the same, exactly the same, only the title changed to Wham for some reason, I don't know why. Uh, and then, of course, later on, many, many years later, uh, that was chosen by a duo. You might, you might have heard those wham somewhere, I think. <laughs> but no, you're, you're talking about the beginning. It was live to air. Uh, there was no recording. It was um, very, 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 very uh, dangerous, that's the word, uh, because rock and roll wasn't accepted. Um, Rita Gillespie was the director, a woman director in those days, which is fantastic. And she was doing fast cutting and things which had never been seen before. So really, the the Oh Boy and the Boy Meets Girls and the Wham series, they were the beginning of pop music on, on television. And that set the style. And do you know something? That style is still there today. Yeah. 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 
How long before Ready Steady came along? Oh, not long after. That was a, 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 a competitor. In, you see, we're indepe- oh, there were 17 independent companies in those days, and they're all competing with each other. Uh, and uh, Ready Steady Go came from Associated Rediffusion, which was in Wembley. Uh, and they, so we're all nicking ideas off each other, ABC, Rediffusion. Later on, ABC and Rediffusion fused to make Thames. So Thames is a, a almost 50-50 uh, mixture of Rediffusion and ABC television. But in those days, at this, the time that you're talking about, oh boy, uh, everybody was nicking anything of everybody. Yeah. Uh, we were very, very competitive. Not like now. It's ITV now, which is virtually the BBC with commercial. But, I mean, then every independent all around the country, they were, they were so different and very competitive. It was wonderful. I loved it. Thank you. Um, on, to, on to Josh's next question. Um, whilst at Thames, you worked under a good friend of Beyond the Title, the legendary Brian Tesla. <laughs> I didn't work under Brian Tesla. Brian Tesla. Brian Tesla is the reason that you and I are talking today, as far as I'm concerned. He he was the man that lifted me from being on the camera crew to being a trainee director. Why? I I couldn't understand it. Uh, People talk about um, uh, that syndrome, the... uh, um, What's it called? The, the syndrome where you, you feel you're not worthy. Oh, imposter syndrome. Yeah, the imposter syndrome. I felt that like mad. But Brian Tesla had faith in me. I didn't even have faith in myself. And he said, I'm going to train you over three years. And he did. Uh, and I find it difficult, even now when I'm 81, to call him uh, Brian Tesla. I still call him Mr. Tesla, even on Christmas cards. Um, and he's told me off on many, many occasions, please don't call me Mr. Tess, it makes me feel old, call me Brian. But I, you mentioned the one name in television there, Josh, that to me was the governor. He was a director, he directed the Palladium, he was a producer, he was a darn nice fellow, he was an honest man, uh, he treated his staff beautifully. Uh, we all adored him, and right out of the blue, he picked me, to be one of his, well, his first general trainee directors. So um, thank you for mentioning Brian Tesla. It's lovely to talk about him. So when 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 you meet him and when he enters the room, he has a lot of charisma. Charisma, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> 
met him about five years ago in London. Josh can tell he was in the presence of one of the greats. Oh, yes. Oh, no doubt. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And he's still living today. I, he must be 90. I don't know how old he is. Uh, but he's uh, still living today. I still get a Christmas card from him. Uh, and as I say, the name Brian Tesla is, well the most important person in my life. He obviously impressed you, which I'm delighted with. I think he impressed everybody. Mm-hmm. And he was the ladies loved him because he was a very handsome man in his youth. <laughs> he still is. <laughs> um, we go on to the next question, Winston. Yes. Um, in um, in 1968 you secured a uh, producing role on one of the biggest shows of the day, Opportunity Knocks. In a world before reality television, what sort of reservations did ABC TV hold about centering a show around members of the public? Um, the members of the, using members of the public uh, was always regarded with great suspicion by the IBA and the ITA because th- there was no script, so you couldn't. Um, there was no compliance, so you didn't know what they were going to say, and that was the job of the host. Um, the host talking to members of the public could either drag the worst out of them, like David Frost could, or they could drag the best out of them, like Michael Parkinson could. Uh, or there was a middle road, which was Michael Miles in those days and, and Huey Crane. And, and these two people were entrusted with talking to the public because the IBA and ITA knew, ITA knew that they would not um, drag some controversy out, that they were after the nice part of the public, not controversy. So uh, they were the bridge, if you like, to using uh, the members of the public on there. Uh, but the, we were very, we, I say we, the, the, the authorities were very suspicious, suspicious of members of the public who hadn't read the rules and who didn't necessarily know how to behave on, on television. Uh, we, as new directors, we had to sign a contract in those days that said that we would have nothing whatsoever to do financially with any member of the public, that we would have nothing to do romantically with any member of the public without prior permission, uh, the, 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 the restrictions on producers and directors, uh, and artists to a certain extent, uh, when dealing with the members of the public, were, were very, very strict. I don't think they exist now, but they did then. And if you think about Huey Green with Opportunity Knox, with all the millions of people, and there's not a massive list of people that came off Opportunity Knox that you might be unaware of. I'll just shoot, shoot through them quickly. John Miles, who passed away. John Parr, uh, St. Elmo's Fire, Mud Aswad. Mary Hopkins, Peter Lee, Shawadi Wadi, the real thing still working today. Uh, the, the list goes on. Les Dawson, Tom McCullough, Cannon and Ball, 
Miss Enlarge, the, the Chuckle Brothers, who were the Harper's Prince beginning, Frank Carson, Freddie Davies, Max Beasley, the actor in Hollywood. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. It was a massive talent show. Um, and yet Huey Green died, uh, a very happy man, but he died not worth a lot of money, in comparison to Simon Cowell. Now, here you've got two completely different things in two different eras. You've got Huey Green that was not allowed to make one farthing out of any artist that appeared an opportunity not, and neither was I, right? And then years later, you've got a completely change of rules, a, a relaxation, if you like, where Simon Cowell now is worth more than Susan Boyle. You know, he, he made Susan Boyle a star, mm-hmm. I think she made 10 million quid. But while she made 10 million quid, he made 20, you know. So uh, there's a, I'm, I'm not saying that this is right, and I'm not saying that I'm jealous, and I'm not saying that it should have been. I'm just explaining to you the difference between the way that the industry regarded those, the other side of, of the television lens then, and the way they regard them now. And now... Um, we look upon the public not as people, but as demographic groupings, uh, and the advertisers will aim at you. You, Josh, for what you are, who you are, they'll go for you, and the stuff they'll try to sell you will be different than the stuff they'll try to sell me. Um, so we're, we're not people anymore. We are demographic groupings now. We're sort of advertising fodder. Mm. But... Um, you're quite right to mention the the public in those days. They were, they were, as you say, they, they were, uh, they did threaten <laughs> like mad. Does that answer your question? Josh has interviewed quite a few of the people that have appeared on either New Faces or Opportunity. They've all got a varying outlook on on what what you know either of the uh, the shows did for their careers themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what you what you probably don't know, you might know. I don't know. But uh, um, New Faces at ATV started its life out on Opportunity Knocks. Did you know that? When we went to Australia to do Opportunity Knocks for Channel Nine. Uh, we were interviewing somebody, uh, and they said, oh, well, uh, um, his name. Uh, no, I've forgotten his name. Um, anyway, he said, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the, the host of, of New Faces. And Green said, what's New Faces? Huey Green said, what's New Faces? He said, that's a talent show rather like yours. Here's a clip. And, of course, they played a clip in black and white. So that was transmitted in, in England. The first time New Faces ever appeared was Opportunity Now. And then, of course, we were we were direct competitors because, mm. uh, again, we're going back to this regional thing. New, New Faces was ATV and we were ABC or Thames. Yeah. 
Mm. Brilliant, thank you. Um, on to the um, onto Josh's next question. Um, it was this experience that brought you closer to the legendary Huey Green, as we discussed. Um, one of the colourful characters in the pantheon of showbiz, but perhaps a victim of the first generation of tabloid hearsay. Yeah. How significant was his role in the popularity of uh, shiny floor entertainment, as Josh put it? Oh, very, very, very I think very... Uh, you see, the, again, Huey Green uh, was... I have to be honest with you. Huey Green was a friend of mine. Uh, I, I loved him to pieces. Uh, I still do, and I spent half my life uh, writing nasty notes to people who called him all sorts of names unjustifiably. Uh, so I stick up for him even how many years since he died? He died in nineteen ninety-seven. So you know, um, no, I, Huey and I were great friends, uh, and I had a great respect for him. He told me on numerous occasions that uh, which he was a, he was a star of hollywood in in when he was 14 years of age in a film called midshipman easy in hollywood where he employed david lean the director the first film that david lean ever did was with huey green as a star in hollywood uh, so Huey used to say, I started, oh, uh, oh Fran, I started at 14 years of age, a star of Hollywood. And from then on, I went downhill. And that's the way that Huey Green <laughs> regarded himself. He, he never saw it, yeah. But what the thing, the thing that I ask always people to remember is that Huey Green couldn't tell a joke. He couldn't sing. He couldn't dance. He couldn't act. He couldn't do a darn thing. But there he was, and you mentioned the word charisma with Brian Tesla. Oh, by the way, Brian and Huey were great friends as well. But you mentioned the word charisma when Green, you used to call him Green, when Green walked in a room, by Joe, that room was full. Mm -hmm. and, and I never met anybody who met him that didn't instantly like him. All the people that write nasty things about Huey Green, I always ask them the same question. Oh, really? So when did you either meet him or or uh, work with him? When? And the answer is always never. People are, are on this, and you you mentioned it, Josh. This this tabloid uh, this tabloid showboat that goes on, uh, where rumor is added to rumor is added to rumor. In reality. Um, he was a wonderful man, and 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 he did me a lot of good. You know, he, he we we laughed a lot, we worked a lot, uh, and we enjoyed each other's company. Does that answer your question, there? Well, it did. Me, what what did you make of the drama? Yeah. Oh, I will send you, if you, I've got your email, I will send you my letter to the, to the uh, uh, Director General of the BBC at the time of Mark Thompson. I will send you my letter that I sent him about the drama of, of, uh, of Hugh Green. It was inaccurate in every way. But you see, it was written by a man who had picked up 25 grand, a lot of money in those days, 1997, for, for writing all this rubbish in the news of the world, a man called Noel Botham, and also 
added to by Huey's son. And, and it's no secret that Huey and his son, had, had, had his son by his marriage, as a dissolved years before, uh, his son was a very, very strange character. Um, I remember the wake after Huey Green's funeral. It was horrible. His son was there and he was, he was showing off and, you know, um, all very inappropriate. But the BBC was, the script was, was, was by Nolbotham and by his son. So it was biased against Green. And, and there were so many inaccuracies in there. One of the, one of the biggest inaccuracies was the depiction of, of, uh, of Green's housekeeper, uh, who was a, a, a Scottish, she was 82, I think, and a Scottish Presbyterian. Uh, and the most morally upstanding person you've ever met in your life. Uh, I mean, even Green wouldn't swear or, or curse him from the birds at all. And they got her in this drama of with Huey Green going ooh, ooh, to Huey Green, which is completely out of the question. She would never have given the V side to anybody except church. Mm. as a writer because obviously nowadays you can't you can't break anything like that without having all the evidence there as such no exactly uh, I mean all the evidence was there they did exactly the same by the way to Tony Cooper I was you know I mean I was a great friend of Tommy's as well I did I did well, about 15 one hour specials with Tommy as his producer director and, and I knew Tommy very well and then they did a a thing where uh, they depicted Tommy as being a drunk and having an affair with this stage manager and not being very nice to his wife and da 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 da, and it was all absolute rubbish. Him and his wife got on a bomb together. They were business partners. Uh, yes, he did have an affair with his stage manager, but it was uh, the singularly most wonderfully romantic and business affair. It wasn't a sexual affair. And his wife knew all about it and totally approved because Mary knew Tommy better than anybody else. And and, and they were in love with each other. And it was an honest, an honest... I mean, if one's saying, oh, you're married now, you can't be in love with anybody else, that's rubbish. You know, Tommy was in love with Mary, Mary was in love with Tommy. And it was a lovely relationship. It wasn't smutty in any way, shape or form, but people tried to make it that. And the BBC again failed uh, with this drama doc uh, to cast doubt about about Tommy Cooper. Uh, and yet, you know, Tommy was, I mean, people people said he was a drunk. No, he'd sit after his, his, his uh, cabaret in a club or somewhere and person after person after person wanted to meet Tommy. And they'd all say, hi, Tommy, what would you like to drink? And Tommy would always say, 
what are you drinking? And they'd say, a gin and tonic or a brown ale or a whiskey and gin or something. And he said, I'll have that. It, whatever they said, he said, I'll have that. And along it came, and his table at the end of the night was full of drinks, totally full of drinks. You could move for drinks and say, yeah, I'd need you like any other. But he got the reputation for being a drunk, and he wasn't a drunk by any means. He couldn't have been, not the way he worked. Yeah. Thank you. I'm being an apologist for the people I love now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in 1978, um, you became director on the Kenny Everett video. Oh, yes, I most certainly did. Yeah. I had a wonderful time. When, when yes, well, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd loved the show. Uh, it had been directed by David Mullet the, the year before. Um, and David went off to do something with Rocky Oldham somewhere. And, uh, and I got appointed to direct it, and it was wonderful. Uh, and it was like a party, like going to a party every day. The, the unit was Kenny Everett, Barry Cryer, uh, and Ray Cameron, Michael McIntyre's father, actually, Ray Cameron, uh, and Kenny. And that, that, those, those, those four people, um, three people, were the backbone. And then me as a director, if you like, I was in charge of making sure that that entire thing was going to be shot properly and put together properly and uh, organised properly. Uh, you may wonder what I have always... What Brian Tesla taught me many years ago, the job of a television director. And the t- job of a television director was to make the artists feel comfortable, to create an atmosphere whereby the artists could work their very best magic, uh, not create an atmosphere where these artists couldn't perform properly, but reverse, create a situation where they were happy. Um, so you didn't bring politics onto the studio floor. Uh, you, you know, you tried to keep a happy, uh, a happy atmosphere going all the time, uh, which was absolutely <laughs> wonderful with Barry and Ray Cameron and, and Kenny because they were just messing about all the time. It was not live. It was a very recorded program. So we were in a studio smaller than this room uh, with a cameraman, a boom operator, uh, a makeup artist, Kenny, Barry, Ray, and me. That was it. And he'd put on a Marcel Wade false beard or something and we'd and stand in front of the white sheet and we go Marcel Wave, Marcel Wave, Marcel Wave. 95% of the Marcel Wave stuff he did was horrible. It didn't work. It didn't get a laugh. It was crap. <laughs> but the 1% was magic and that was the 1% you saw and that was the 1% that I edited in the program. The same with Sid Snot, the same with everybody else. But you see, Kenny was not a comedian. He, he was not a performer. He was a sound engineer. He was magic with engineering. That was his love. A, a sound engineer with a sense of humour. That's what Kenny was. And, and my God, I'll miss him. The, the industry misses Kenny. He was. Uh, he, he went too soon. He went far too soon. But wonderful. And Barry Cryer, you know, I mean, <laughs> Barry's been at the top of his game ever since I first met him in 1968 
Um, and whatever genre of comedy you want to talk about, Barry's in there. He's in there with, with stand-up alter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I miss him like mad. I mean, you know, Barry went a few weeks ago and and I couldn't believe that. Um, you know, I, my, my age, an awful lot of people are popping up. Because everybody that I knew, this is Brian Tesla's fault. He made me a training director when I was very young. I was only 20. So I was very, very young. So all my my all my heroes and all the people I work with are older than me. Well, I was 81 last week, which mm. means that, you know, everybody's older and they're dropping like flies. And it ain't very funny at the moment. <laughs> there we are. But, yeah. So I hope that answers you. I went rambling on there. I'm sorry. But did I answer your question right, Kenny Everett? He was wonderful. Oh, ask it again. Um, yeah, it was, it was just because you, you, you mentioned uh, Barry Cryer. It was just um, with, with, within Josh's questions. It was just um, when speaking with the late great Barry Cryer, he said exactly as you said. Everett wasn't a comedian. He was Kenny Everett. That's right. One up, singular. It was not unique in every way, shape, and form. Unique, and and and, and, and a little bit of controversy there. All the time I was with Kenny for a series, and you know when you when you're working with artists, any artist, you you you're with them during moments of of uh, of concentration, uh, moments of of anger, perhaps moments of frustration, uh, and uh, you see them behave like any normal human being will behave with irritation or whatever else. Uh, any of us professional producers and directors that that make hay by by talking about people's foibles once shooting that's another Brian Tesla uh, teaching aid you see that's, that's something else he taught me many years ago that was what was in the studio stage in the studio but with Kenny he was just a, a silly man that was he was just a silly man that made you laugh all the time. That's all he was. <clears throat> a wonderfully uh, innocent, silly man. Um, the gayness of Kenny Everett was never, ever an issue. I mean, our industry is full of, 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 uh, of gay people. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't, doesn't, never mattered. It never mattered. Uh, but Kenny's gayness only mattered to people again like Huey Green who'd never met him. You know, and they made a big deal out of, of, of his gayness and, and it really wasn't a big deal at all, you know. Um, just on to the next next question. Um, you, you've talked you talked briefly about Tommy Cooper a moment ago, Royston, but um, everyone, everyone who was working in TV during the 60s and 70s has a story about Tommy Cooper. <laughs> um, what's 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 yours? Oh, I've got so many. Um, wow, I think uh, let me try and think of one. I should, I, I should have thought of that, shouldn't I? Well, you see, Tommy. If I can explain to you, I always felt I was going to. I was letting Tommy down. Uh, and I'll explain you why. Tommy was in cabaret. He was a top 
he was a top star. He was so he never went on the stage until one o'clock in the morning. And that was the time that he was peaking with the brain going click, click, click at one o'clock in the morning. So he wouldn't get up until four o'clock in the afternoon. Why not? Because he didn't get to bed until four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You know? Uh, when you come off the stage, you want to drink, you want to chat, you've got to get in your car, you've got to go home. So his clock, his body clock was different to ours completely. And you hear I was a television director. I'm saying, right, you will be at your top form at 10 o'clock in the morning. 10 o'clock in the morning, joking. You'll perform in front of an audience at 8 o'clock at night, which is the traditional time for recording a television show. 8 o'clock. He's having his breakfast normally at 8 o'clock at night. And I tried with Thames, I tried with Brian Tesla as well to say, can't we record Tommy at, in his timescale at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning? Can't we do that? <clears throat> and we tried, but it was dark. Getting audiences in and out of the studio was difficult. The security was difficult. The technicians' schedules for months were difficult. Uh, everything was difficult, too difficult, and too expensive in those days to do it. But I think in today's atmosphere, if, if you would, it, and Tommy was still at the top of his game, and you said to somebody, Look, I'll tell you what, try Tommy Cooper at one o'clock in the morning. You might find a different Tommy, even better, even funnier. Mm-hmm. You know? So, so my 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 stories about timescale, um, I I asked him, oh, within a couple of weeks of first meeting, we got a ten o'clock in the morning uh, rehearsal in, in a church hall somewhere in Cheddington, and he didn't show up to the eleven, uh, and I, I I eventually went over and ticked him off quietly, and said, you know, we had uh, ten actors here all waiting, and, and they'd they'd all got up early and, and we can't work without you and you know they were sitting around it was all embarrassing for like two hours until you appeared and you know if you could turn up at 10 o'clock I'd be ever so grateful and so he said I will I will I will I will I'll turn up I'll blow you away right. so the next, next week we're doing rehearsals and, and it's getting to, towards 5 to 10 and I'm, I'm saying to my peer I wonder whether Tom will keep his promise and turn up and at 10 o'clock on the, on the nose, we had a car coming over the gravel in the car park. And a door, door slam. And in walked Tommy, right? With pyjamas, a dressing gown, his hair all ruffled up, a German <laughs> blind helmet on, a hot water bottle on his arm, right? And he's <laughs> fly undone, right? And he said, I've got here as quick as I could, I'm sorry. <laughs> and that taught me a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my story about him. Jenny Bernard Wars above him. Uh, yeah, that was, that's all I actually remember, Tom. Something in there showing everything he had. And the, the artist that was there with him, who uh, um, we were rehearsing with him at that time, uh, they were all established artists like Victor Spinetti. Uh, and just roared with laughter, and that was the end. Of, that was the beginning and the end of the day. But you know, I mean, we we do sketches, <clears throat> and like we did one sketch where he was playing 
the, he was playing Albert Tatlock out of Coronation Street. We got all various stupid people playing part, but he was Albert Tatlock. And Al, the story was Albert Tatlock was dying, and this was his last appearance on Coronation Street. But Albert Tatlock didn't want to die because he knew that the moment he died, he'd never earn again. Right, so he's in bed in this dying scene, and and the the sketch is about I'm I'm going now, I'm going, I'm going now. Mm-hmm. I I'm, I'm not done yet, no. <laughs> and and this was the sketch, which was funny in itself. And in the middle of this, we're on the air, not live, but but we used to shoot them for live. It was certainly didn't have time for editing, um, and he's in bed in the in the sketch. He's going, I'm going now. I'm going out. And suddenly he got out of bed, which he would not rehearse, and he walked downstairs to camera, breaking the fourth wall completely, and the camera pulls back with him all the way back, and everything's seen, all the scene, everything's seen, everything like that. And he walks up to the audience and says, ah, here's a little trick. I want to show you something. <laughs> and went straight into what you and I both know as being Thomas Hoover. So that's the sort of character. But you see, that was making him feel comfortable in the studio. That was Brian's teaching. Mm. But he was a joy, a complete joy to work with. I was very, I'm very privileged to have his name on my CV. Um, and we had a lot of, a lot of good times with, with, with Tom. He was a good man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another legendary uh, comedian you worked with was the great Les Dawson. Oh, what? In yeah. terms of his route into comedy, he was rather unique in that he didn't come up through what was then the conventional avenues of variety, and obviously an inspired spot on Opportunity Knox presented the perfect platform. How do you think yeah. this helped to influence the rest of his career? Oh, absolutely, uh, without any shadow of doubt. Uh, again, we're, we're talking about the different time of, of, of in history where um, the 17 television companies were regional, and as we're talking about regionality, uh, I'd known Les Dawson before he was ever famous. I'd known him as a um, a, a pianist. Uh, uh, what would you call him? Uh, a silly pianist that told daft stories, but was was wonderful um, in strange clubs in Hull and various places. So I, I knew of him, and I knew that. Uh, he was a bit of a strange, odd character, oddball. Uh, I didn't know him personally, but I knew that he was oddball. I also knew that he was respected in clubs. So, one day, I'm auditioning Opportunity Knocks with Huey. We're in, a big, we're in Milton Hall in Manchester, a big, big hall, with all the, all the auditionees sitting around. They all came in together because they formed the audience for one another. It was a nice atmosphere. So we're at our table at the top. Um, Huey Green, me, Doris Barrett, uh, and I'm looking and I see this guy, I, I recognise as Les Dawson, I go down thing, I say, Les, you're Les Dawson. He said, that's right. I said, come sit with us at the back, in the VIP bit, uh, and meet Huey. And he said, I can't do that. And I said, why not? He said, because I'm here to audition. I said, don't be silly. And he was. His wife, uh, I had filled in the fort because he'd, she'd said to him, you're not making money. And, and if you don't make any money out of this comedian thing, you're going to have to get a proper job. And they'd have big arguments for it. 
And she said, your last chance is to bear opportunity in life. And this was his last chance. I said, yeah, I'll look for you. So I went back to look for the form that said, because obviously I had to send it for me. I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, and I said to Cindy, my secretary, he's there. He, he's filled the form and he's told me. She, she said, I found him, but it's not him, it's a her. I said, what do you mean? And the secretary at Ted, Teddington had written on the form, Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, Dawson, pianist. So he was in the girl file for pianist. That's where he was, his dad. Anyway, so I put him up and he went to, uh, to, to you again. I want to play a piece written by Mozart, his very last piece before he died. Thank you. Right? Anyway. And then he died. Right? And that was his first and only joke. And Green, Huey Green fell on the sense that it was his mm-hmm. And I said, he's a, he's a legend already. So Les came on. But then he won. Now, this is the interesting thing. He was northern. He was undoubtedly northern, as I am. Um, I'm proud of it, by the way. Uh, I said to Philip Jones, the head of entertainment at the time, we should do a series with this man. He's, he's, uh, he's very special. He's very unique. He's very different. He's different to any other comedian around at the time now. And, and Philip Jones said, no, he's too regional. That was the way, because we were a London station. No, he's too regional, right? Uh, that's how he got to Leeds. That's where Cesar Les came from. And if you've, you've, you've done quite a lot of research, Josh, I know. So you probably noticed that Cesar Les was directed by the first director on the Kenny Everett show, David Mallet. Hmm. Yeah. So you've got this wonderful, bizarre, stupid stupidity um, of the two people in various areas. But Les broke that wall about regionality. And if you think back, there wasn't really any, any big name with a Northern accent or a Scottish accent, if you like. Roy Walker had done it with a Northern Irish accent. But everybody at that time was speaking with this uh, received pronunciation of no accent. Didn't he do a show with... Oh, Lulu, sorry. Didn't you do a show with Lulu? No, I have Lulu as a guest on many shows, but I never did Lulu's actual show. Josh thinks that um, Les did a show with Lulu in the early 60s. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so 
Was that before he did Opportunity Knocks, perhaps? No. No, he never appeared on television before Opportunity Knocks. Anywhere. No. No, Opportunity Knocks was his very, very first... uh, It was his first performance outside of the north of England and his, his first television performance. And then it all went from there. I mean, you know, the, the, the day after, um, on the Monday after it went out, uh, the phone never stopped. Um, Mark Stewart, who was a very senior producer, was in an office a few up from mine, came in and he said, who the hell was that man you had on Monday? It was brilliant. Is he available to do my show in Blackpool? That's called Blackpool Night Out. Mike and Bernie Winters. Uh, and I said, most certainly is. I didn't even know, but I said, yes, he is. And phone us up and said, oh, how would you fancy working in Blackpool on Blackpool Nights Out? And so Blackpool Nights Out was his first show outside of Opportunity Knox, which was literally two weeks after. Uh, and again, that has a story because they, the Mark had said to him, um, I'm putting you on. Uh, if you get laughs, I'll put you in the programme. If you don't get laughs, you're not going in. Is that all right? Unless it's fine about me. So he said, well, just do four minutes, right? Uh, so Les went on and started on about nonsense. The audience were in raptures. They had screams of applause and, and laughter throughout. Wonderful. I was in tears watching it. I was in the audience and I was just tears rolling down because I was so pleased for him. Uh, but I thought, my God, this is more than four minutes. And it was, it was seven by the time he finished. And Dickie Henderson came on and said, hey, you've just seen the stars been born tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, come back on and take a bow, which was not unscripted. And I went backstage to say to Les, wow, well, well done. I'm so thrilled for you. Uh, and Philip Jones and Mark Stewart uh, were in a big conflict there. And uh, Philip Jones said, you've got to take three minutes out of him before you put him on. You can't put him on for the full seven. You've got to take three minutes out. Otherwise, he's not going on. And there's a big argument going on. This is absolutely true. And along came Dickie Henderson, Right. Out of, out of nowhere, like, like, and Dickie came in and he said, look, excuse me, fellas, the three minutes you're looking for is exactly the running time of my Umbrella Man song. I've just done Umbrella Man tonight. I'll do it exactly the same in 10 years. I'm doing it exactly the same tonight as I did it 20 years ago. There's nothing special about my Umbrella Man, but there was something very special about that young comedian. That was history being made. If you cut one minute, one second out of this performance, I won't be here next week. I went, oh, I've heard of. And that was, that was Dickie Henderson. A wonderful moment, a moment I treasure. Um, the seven minutes went out and the headlines came and that was the most awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Um,
Uh, like most comedians, there's so many layers to Les Dawson, from his signature piano playing to Sissy and Ada. Yet an unlikely partnership occurred in the ITV sketch show, says Les, uh, where he starred alongside John Cleese. In your opinion, how significant was this union in bringing the comedy fraternity together? Oh, massive. Absolutely massive. But there's one thing about Les Dawson there, Josh, you've forgotten, that he was a fantastic writer. He's, he wrote, I think it was 28 books. Uh, and if you've not read, read a Les Dawson book, and they're all in audio now, I think, as well. If you've not read a Les Dawson book, please do, because he was a fabulous writer. His wife, Tracy, I'm still very much in touch with, of course, and Charlotte, um, and she's still selling books. She, people are still asking her for Les Dawson books. And they were, they were comedy books. They were, some of them were romantic, some were crime novels. But, you know, so he was a, he was a very educated man um, that appealed immediately to John Cleese because he was a man that understood the English language. He understood the, the use of words, odd, strange words, the, the configuration of words in a sense. Um, uh, Les, Les understood literature and he understood the English language. And I think it was that, and so did John Cleese. That was the, the thing, not comedy as such. It was this appreciation. Like Stephen Fry, the same thing. Stephen Fry's got a fantastic appreciation of, 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 of the mechanics of, of the English language. Uh, and that was with Les. So, I mean, Les and, and Cleese became mates immediately, like that, him, and they made each other laugh. And there's yards of footage of them, each other coaching each other on the set. There's a wonderful First World War sketch you might have seen with John Cleese, who was the officer with Les Dawson as a private, and they yeah. never, never got through it, I should see it. But no, um, all John Cleese's friends recognise the fact that Les was not just a northern comic telling blue jokes. He was a man that, that, that had, had a, a grip like nobody else on the English language. And, and so it appealed to the academic. Mm. Yeah? When I asked Jimmy his when Josh asked um, Jimmy Tarbuck who his favourite comedian was, he said, it's no question, it's Les Dawson. Yes. Well, I mean, they were con- Jimmy was the first person to break the mould um, of a club comedian being given the, 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 the position of being a host of Sunday nights at the London Palladium. It was absolutely unheard of. <clears throat> and he came on, just saying on a second, uh, <clears throat> if you look back at that, uh, Jimmy Tarbuck, he was like the fifth Beatle. He looked like a Beatle, you know, he was during Beatlemania. He looked like a Beatle. He spoke with the same Liverpool accent that John Lennon spoke with. Um, and he found it very, very difficult in London to relate to the scene 
of entertainers in London. He found it very difficult. So when Les Dawson came along, um, he had an immediate, um, immediate partner. He, he, he understood immediately. Um, this regionality thing is quite is quite a big problem. You know, people uh, often well, people don't talk about it, but in those days, nowadays, it's not a yeah. thing with the internet. But those in those days, it was. And Jimmy certainly felt it. So, so uh, Jimmy and I were great mates. Uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, again, I did. I, I don't know if you saw it, but I did a, a tribute to Jimmy not, not, not long ago. Mm. Uh, particularly poignant because uh, they interviewed me, and then I got out of the seat, and the next person in the seat was Bobby Ball, uh, and Bobby did his tribute to uh, um, to Jimmy. Uh, and then two days later, Bobby died. That was the last thing he ever did. Mm. Yeah. Well, I couldn't say too much here, but I'm Josh can't say too much about it on here, but he's doing something uh, live with with Jimmy uh, later in the year. Please give him my regards. He's a lovely man. Have you have you met him so far? Have you met him yet? Yeah. I've spent him quite a few times. He's been to his golf club as well. Oh, That's it, yeah. well, yes. He shouldn't be allowed on a golf club. Give it to each other. He's, he lies about his handicap. He's... <laughs> A bit like me. Um, uh, Royston, how, how do you think the tube helped to push boundaries for the future of live TV? Well, uh, I'm not sure it did. Um, there was already uh, the old great whistle test, you know, that's uh, already that. Um, at Time Tees, I was head of light entertainment there. Uh, the tube was already in, in, in being developed when I joined the company. My job joining Time Tees, the, the, the boss there, Andrew Wonfoot, employed me to try and convince the technicians on the studio floor that they were uh, net worthy of being on the network. She knew they were, but they didn't believe it themselves. They, they got, had been knocked back so many times by network that they uh, had lost confidence. And my job was to bring confidence. So I did. Uh, and I, I'm very proud I succeeded. We did Hideaway Network. We did Get Fresh Saturday Morning Network. We did David Berg Glass for Channel 4. We did Rasmus House Network. Uh, we did Chain Letters Network. We did uh, da, 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 Network. And, 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 and I had a wonderful time there at Time Seas. Uh, the Tube was was working at the, at the same time as Rasmus House. The difference being Rasmus House was selling uh, 
new pop music yet to be released. It was about new releases. That was what it was about. It was a, a sort of a newspaper for kids about what was pop. And the tube along the corridor from us, they were selling album tracks and they were selling, uh, they were dealing with established performers who, who, who were doing something different, something new. So it was, there were two completely different audiences. Tube was the first thing on Channel 4, which was terribly important, because their remit was to be like their logo, all bits and pieces, all shapes and sizes and different colours. That was that was the, the 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 strap line that they put when they first did that Channel Four logo. Uh, all all different sizes, different shapes, different shapes and sizes, and different colours. That's what it was all about. And that was the brief for Channel Four. Um, Rasmus House, of course, was on ITV, so we didn't have the same. We had a normal afternoon brief, that. but it did. If you look at the tube then, and you look at uh, Jules Holland later with now, exactly the same. Exactly the same. So Jules carried with him the style that he created in the tube in those days. Um, And, you know, uh, I think if you're talking about the tube, I have to say, the, the reason that the tube was a success, as it was, was that Andrea Wanfer, the boss, had employed the singly most remarkable set of researchers I'd ever come across. There, there, there was a specialist in Little Richard. What? That's all he knew about, was Little Richard. There was a specialist in Fats Domino. There, and these guys were on full money. Unheard of on a regional station, but they they all sat in this room and they were researchers with immense knowledge, and that's the reason I think that she was produced by Malcolm Gary, who produced uh, the Brits, I think, a few weeks ago, directed by Gavin Taylor, who was a wonderful director. But the content itself was a must-watch for Channel Four people because it was informative, and that came from the researchers who, you know, who were saying, we're going to do such and such. Why are you going to do what? But no, the, the, the Tube was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful programme. Um, in 1999, you were selected as part of the BBC's Millennium coverage. Yes, um, I was. How much preparation goes into such a mammoth show? And what are your memories working with the great Michael Parkinson? Well, I'd known Michael from Granada days. I mean, Michael was a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful pro. Um, no, uh, so there was no, no, there was nothing new about Michael. Michael could cope with anything. Uh, he could cope with the breakdown. He could, I'd live his way out of a paper bag if need be. So Mike, Michael was the complete and total absolute pro and the, and the best choice possible for that show. From my point of view, it was 26 hours live. It was a show that was chasing the, the sun around the globe. So wherever there was a, a midnight, we were with it all the way through 26 hours, uh, two hours to lead up, and then the 24 hours around the globe. Uh, my, I was one of six producers in it, uh, and we were all chipping in with various ideas. Um, you'll know, because you're technically minded, that 
in every second there's 24 frames. Uh, that's the way it was in the video. So we were talking with countries, uh, Indonesia, about a certain time in hours, minutes and frames. That's how detailed it was to fit this mosaic together that was going to happen live because there was five satellite hubs around. We were bouncing from one to another to another. The, 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 uh, the idea of getting a live feed from India followed by a live feed from Zora was, uh, was a, a technical challenge like there was no other as far as we were concerned. And we were told by the engineers that we had to uh, talk in terms of frames, in terms of time and that, that, that detail. So f- for me, the, the camera script, you've seen a normal camera script is about that thick for a show. Yeah. Got the camera script. I should have, if I'd known about it, I would have brought it down. I've got the camera script up in my office. It's that thick. It's that thick. The, the camera script for the entire show. Wonderful. And, and, and that was into 2000. And, and I said to my wife, Sarah, I've been thinking of retiring for a while. Now is as good a time as any. I'm never going to top that, ever. So I retired in the year 2000. Yeah. <laughs> Was that your last directing post? I didn't direct you. I was the producer of that. No, my last directing post, oddly enough, was in India because I've been retired. Uh, I then got the opportunity. Uh, well, I got asked to write a report about the feasibility of India as a as a as a place to make commercial television. So I went out to Delhi uh, and tried to uh, and tried to make headway. And by accident, sheer accident complete serendipity. I'm a man called uh, Colonel Prabhakaran and we're still friends this day, Al-Sidhar Basu. So I went out to India uh, and they said, well, you know, do you fancy directing a couple of shows? And I said, I'd love to. So I directed two or three, well, two or three, I think it was 700 or something like that in India, uh, for over five years. So I, in, in England, I think people thought I was dead. I disappeared off the face of the earth. But I was having a wonderful time in Delhi and Bombay. Bombay was called then, not Mumbai. Bombay. So, so the last yeah. thing I directed would be what? What was the last thing I directed? The last thing I directed, oh, then I came back, would have probably been Cleopatra coming at you as a Christmas special from Granada, I think. Uh, that was the three girls, Cleopatra. Uh, uh, yeah. So it was a it was a spectacular where whereby they kept seeing, imagining people, and they were the real people. You know, they'd open the drawer for the socks, and out would come Sussy, and you know that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> So what's the first bit then? What do you think the 
What's the difference between the audiences? In India. In India. In Britain. And Britain. So what's the difference, the main differences between the audiences in, in India and in Britain? Vast. I mean, vast. They'd only had uh, Dordesham as, as a, a channel, which was like the BBC, uh, until uh, until Sky came in there and, and started with the satellites, but Indian people are film goers. They love they love the film industry. They love Bollywood, uh, and Bollywood is like we we don't have this in, in our country. Bollywood is their pop music and their drama and their soap opera all rolled into one. They'd all pile into a cinema and then come out singing the songs. Um, so uh, cinema. And also, because of the weather, uh, much of the Indian cinema was in the open air. It was a village of mm. people sitting, with just with, with, like, like we'd assume a, a car, a cinema car thing. We were just a screen in the middle of a field. Um, so I wish we couldn't do it in this country. But their culture uh, was more to do with film than it was to do with television. Television, they sort of watched the news on it, I think. Uh, so we didn't do the big spectacular entertainment shows and things. That that all that spectacular <laughs> came from film. But, uh, but I, I did I, the game shows was mainly the thing. And again, you see, that was so different because the the internal structure of an Indian family is entirely different to the internal structure of a British family. A, 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 a child would never turn around to its father in India. So you're wrong. I disagree with you. Never in a million years. That would never happen. So uh, to try and do family fortunes is a good example. It was called Al Guest Karan or Yijanika Hatu Uniki. I think it was. Uh, we, we renamed it that in Hindi. Um, but Family Fortunes, that same format, virtually, which we bought, where you've got the inter-involvements between various family members, and we didn't work, we did too, and we said, forget it, it's not going to work, it never work, because their family structure and their, their, their pecking order of, of um, respect and their pecking order of decision-making and did that was completely, is completely different. I mean, I live here in in Lavenshire, and I'm surrounded by by Hindi families, which was was a choice many years ago. Uh, so I know the Hindi culture very well, and and it's brilliant. It's what we used to have many years ago. It's about respect. It's about honesty. It's about all the things that seem to have gone from our society. Yeah. So I'm 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 very I'm very uh, I'm very pro India. <laughs> They did me a part of power good, yeah. Um, in in recent years, um, you've moved the to the other side of the camera as an actor. Um, <laughs> how how did you find working on Emmerdale? I loved Emmerdale. <clears throat> a guy phoned me up again, and he said, "I'm directing uh, this this thing, and there's a, a part for a grumpy old sod in it, and and it's you, Roy." And I said, "Thank you." <laughs> said, I'm, not, I'm not an actor. He said, I don't want you to act. I want you to just be you. <laughs> right. That was my first. So, but, so anyway, eventually I got to Emmerdale uh, by doing an audition and I was playing this, this Raymond 
Robert Robinson, the, the restaurateur. Uh, and it's all new to me. And, and uh, I'm having a time in my life earning a lot of money and looking at the director thinking, my God, you've got the worry of the budget, the crew, the script, the running time, the dilly dilly. And all I've got to do is stand here and think about one line. That's all I've got to do. Yeah. So I'm standing, thinking about the line, learning with my eyes shut, right? Uh, and suddenly I'm aware of, of, of somebody here on my chest. And I look down and it's this very old electrician who looks at me and he says, Hey, didn't you used to be Royston Mayo? <laughs> it's <brilliant>. oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, I saw I, I, many, many, many years ago as a camera, I, I'd worked as a film camera on Candid Camera with Jonathan Routh and Bill Kelly. So I knew Hidden Camera stuff well. Uh, and when Off the Rockers came around, and I did four years on that, so when he came, I'm an actor, I'm a prankster, really. I did four years of Off the Rockers, and at that time of my life, I really did. Yeah. Who wouldn't? Um, yeah, so Josh's next next question is around um, the sort of off-the-rockers um, formats. Um, he said, uh, you starred in the ITV hidden camera show, off-the-rockers, as a, as a legend of TV production. How did you evaluate the development of the hidden camera show from candid camera to vehicles such as off-the-rockers? Well, Those sort of shows aren't quite as easy as you would imagine. Uh, to write the stunt takes a lot of skill. You've got to know the joke, and the joke can be so misinterpreted. So, Off the Rockers, as you saw the first four series, was uh, a mixture of British, well, not a mixture, it was British pranksters doing stunts that had been done and proven in America on a programme over there called um, White's, Mary White's of their rockers, that's not her name. She died last week, one of the Golden Girls. White, anyway. Um, she, 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 she passed away last week. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Betty, Betty White, isn't it? Betty White, that's right, you're quite right. Thank you, Josh. Betty White's off their rockers. And this had been running in America successfully. So um, the company making off the rockers in England bought the sketches that had been written from America and we used them for the first four years. And, of course, they started to run out. Right. So then they booked some proper writers on it. Uh, and if you think, what is the joke of off the rockers? It's quite complex. It's, it's all people returning to their youth and doing silly things. It isn't about old people having sex or trying to have sex. It isn't about disability. It isn't about inability. It isn't about any of those things. Mm. You know, it is a it's about stupidity and silliness. That's what it's about. And 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 not growing up, you know. Uh Anyway, they had some proper writers who did some fine sketches. And then the last series, they decided that 
it was so easy they could do it themselves. So the sketches were written by anybody that happened to pass the door. And they were smutty and they were crap. They sent me a script and I phoned back and I said, I'm not doing that. Sorry, I never refused to do anything before, but I'm not doing that. The sketch was that three old men, of which I was only one, would stand in Trafalgar Square and fart at the national anthem. Now, that is, might be funny, I don't know, but that isn't what Off the Rockers was about. And it was not what I'm about and it wasn't what the show was about. So I said I wouldn't do that. Uh, they did it eventually, but not with me. Uh, and I turned two or three others down, and I watched the show go out, and it was smutty. And I said to my wife, that ain't gonna, that's not going to be renewed. And it wasn't. That was a fifth series. And that was simply because any show, any any show you look at has, has got a, has got a complication about its raison d'etre. Uh, and it needs professionals to understand what that raison d'etre is. Yeah. And, and so Arthur Rockers shot themselves in the foot, as far as I was concerned. Which is very sad to me, because I was on the time of life on it. But, uh, yeah. so. yeah. Yeah. Hey, so... translation as such. Repeat that again, huh? So do you think it's um, an, it's sort of a, an impact sort of from mm. ITV's perspective as such mm. that um, they have to bring in external people as mm. because some of the some of the comedy gets lost in translation as such? Uh, no, it's, it's pure expertise, uh, Josh. It's like, you know, there's a man called John Moll uh, part of Endemol, but John Moll and his wife Linda, he's a genius. Uh, he's a multimillionaire now. He invented things like uh, Big Brother, right? Uh, it was his first one. And, and, and hundreds of, hundreds of programmes since. He spends a fortune testing, looking at the anomalies, uh, making sure it works properly, finding out the bits. I mean, if you look at something like The Wall that's on now, that's very complex. The rules are very, very complex in there. You know, you can't just do it. You can't... The, the, the rules have to be there. So any programme you look at and uh, needs expertise. Now, what I'm finding more and more and more, to my aggravation, 
is looking at ITV and I'm finding programs that are half-baked, that aren't, aren't all there, that are no, never going to work because it's not right. There's, there's all, you must see yourself, there's all sorts of stupid game shows on that that's never going to last. You know, oh, that's a rip-off of this or that's... The, the unique programs are very rare, very rare. The war was unique. Wow, what's that? But uniqueness is it doesn't come often. And and I'm finding that the more I talk to program makers now, the the budget um seems to be spent in the wrong areas, you know, on the lighting or on the sets mm. or whatever, not on people. And yeah. it's people that make programs, you know, that it, it's as simple as that. But I mean I'm sitting I'm sitting in uh, as a old man with my hot water bottle, uh, looking at the sky. I'm a television viewer these days. I'm not involved. Uh, all I can all I can observe is is what goes through here. And I'm thinking, and the phone call with a mate who's still working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm finding down the line that investment in people, training, taking a youngster, like Brian Tesla took a young man, and for three years trained him to be a television director. That meant learning how to do adverts, comedy, drama, football matches, church services. You're a television director. You've got to learn to direct television, outside broadcast, studio, one camera, five cameras. You've got to learn how to do it live, recorded, film. Proper, and I had a real proper training. You know, I was so grateful to Brian. Right at the beginning of this, we said about Brian Chesler, I was trained properly. I've not seen people train that way these days. Yes. And we could talk for another hour about the academia, but yes, people are coming out with uh, uh, BAs, Bachelor of Arts in Media Studies, you know, but they've spent three years writing essays, writing academia. They haven't actually been confronted with Tommy Cooper or been confronted oh. with a blank sheet of paper and saying, fill that by next week. You know, the, the, the practicality is expensive because they need studios. I, I saw the other day that some students had just... Um, just qualified from the, the old Maidstone studios where we did uh, catchphrase with, with Roy Walker. I thought, how wonderful. There's a university somewhere in this country down there that is actually using a studio and, and, and students in it. How tremendous. And, and, and those students, whoever they are, will benefit. But people around in Manchester where they're coming out in, with Bachelor of Arts degrees in, in academia, you know, they're going to get such a shock when they start in this silly business we're in. Because we're not, it's not a very nice business, you know. Josh is saying I wish we had another hour um, so we could tell you uh, a few things that would horrify you. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure of it. I tell you what, it's been a joy talking to you, my my darling. It really has. Thank you, thank you for inviting me. I'm very, I'm very grateful to you. Yeah, thank you, Royston. Um, we just got a couple, just a couple of last questions, if that's okay. Sure. sure. Um, and it was just um, the penultimate one is uh, looking back at your career. What's your proudest achievement? Well, uh, we could say two things, actually, because you forewarned me of this. I'm going to say two things. First of all, I began life as a student sweeping the floor in, in Disbury, in ABC Disbury, in 1956. Uh, I was a student at University then. Uh, and for, to earn a pound a day, which was a fortune, believe you me, in 1956. Uh, we went to this place that hadn't even opened, where we students did anything, clean the toilets, serve the coffee, sweep the floor, clean the car park out, doing it for a pound a day, which we did. Um, when university ended for me, I went to work for ICI uh, as a lab technician. Because in those days when you got a degree, you got a job immediately. And I was in maths. I was only father. Long story. Don't go there. Uh, and 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 I hated it. I hated it. I can't begin to tell you how much I hated it. Hated this job uh, as a lab assistant in ICI. I loathed it. And I did Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I thought on Friday I'm not going in. And on Friday I went to the studio in Disbury. And I went to a man called Jerry Mitchell who was the general manager, and I said, I was a student sweeping the floor here. I want to come back and sweep the floor again. Please. And he said, you're too overqualified. So uh, after much arguments, he gave me a job. So, my proudest moment, I can say to you that I swept the floor on the very first programme ever to be made in ABC television, Pathé in Disbury, Manchester, and I produced and directed the very last programme to be made in that studio. How's that? That's brilliant. <laughs> oh, thank you. And, and then just a, just a final final question, um, Royston, is, is what's next uh, for Royston Mayer? I'm waiting for that phone to ring with my agent on it saying Steven Spielberg wants you. <laughs> when Steven Spielberg came to Manchester, Josh, he couldn't wait to see me, so he didn't. That's a good way to end it. Thank <laughs> <laughs> uh, you. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Bye, Joe. That was that was enjoyable. That was lovely. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.